Hi, this is Jay Todd Anderson, and you are listening to an archival episode of Filmically Perfect. Hi, this is George Williman, and before we start this episode of Filmically Perfect, we actually want to dedicate this one today to a good friend of ours and a work colleague of mine. Erwin uh, Rosenfeld, who for 33 years worked for Columbia Pictures, the company that uh, made and distributed On the Waterfront, and then for the past 15 years worked uh, with me in the Nitrate Film Vaults uh, for the Library of Congress, passed away suddenly a month or so ago, and, uh, and we miss him very much. And this was his favorite film, and he always gave me a hard time about not doing it. So although we regret that uh, we couldn't have done it earlier, we want to dedicate this to Irv and hope that he in some way gets to hear it. So here's the show. Sounds of approaching ominousness and adventure. It is another edition of Filmically Perfect on 91.3 WISO. Hello, I'm the host, Nikki Dakota. Joined in the studio on your radio right, the storyboard artist for all the big stars and the beautiful people, Cohen Brothers for 20 years and counting, and our film guy, he's J. Todd Anderson. J. Todd. I only work for beautiful people. <laughs> I can't be considered a beautiful person. But, uh, also on your radio left and the largest frame brain on the planet, also nitrate film archivist at the Library of Congress, he is our film guy, George Williman. George. I am a contender and a bum. <laughs> you should have looked out for me, George. You should have looked you out for me. You're my brother. You're my brother. You should have looked out for me. I'm my own brother. George. <laughs> and if you haven't figured it out, today, Filmically Perfect takes a look at the 1954 perfect movie on the waterfront. Boy, is it ever a perfect movie, folks. There's just, really doesn't get any better than this when it comes to the period we're dealing with and the politics. And it, it's all packed into one lovely little package here. Pretty mm -hmm. amazing. If we want to take a moment to uh, remind all of ourselves that uh, this is a perfect movie. It, it is. And I think there's not any person on the planet that would say otherwise. I'm sure there's a you professor think? out there somewhere. <laughs> I'm sure there is. And there's a few people who uh, still have a few choice words about Eli Kazan who probably don't yeah. like the movie. Which we will get to, and it's a very interesting tale indeed. Yes. There's a story behind the story we're about to uh, celebrate. But gentlemen, there are a very strict and uh, stern set of parameters that each movie has to pass through its rules, and you don't take them lightly. Uh, what are these sets? Well, On the Waterfront creates the world that it exists in. And it wholly sustains that world. Regardless of changes in society, On the Waterfront retains its meaning and entertainment value. And On the Waterfront front will never be placed in any kind of preferential or numerical order it is perfect in its own scale boy is it ever so we uh, we should mention the uh, really notable cast yeah, of my goodness. Uh, characters well here. yeah where do you start i mean yeah. of course you know the film would not be would not exist probably without marlon brando playing uh, the the downtrodden uh, boxer terry malloy but along giving him like amazing support uh, Rod Steiger as his brother Charlie, Carl Malden as the priest's father Barry, 
and in her first major role, uh, Eva Marie Saint as as the love interest Edie. And let us not forget the great Lee J. Cobb. And Lee J. Cobb as the incredibly slimy oh, he's Johnny slimy. Friendly. He's always Johnny my, he's Friendly. He's always dressed. That's not his real name. I know. Yeah. They'll tell you there. It's, it's Michael Mastriano or something, some Italian name, you know, because it's mob stuff and everything. Um, but, you know, when you you read about this movie and you listen to Elliot Kazan talk – Keep this in mind that they don't play up Marlon Brando as being one of the big deals in this picture, you know, because everybody's like trying to get to the front of the line here on taking credit. But without Marlon Brando, as George said, this movie probably would not exist because it is an independent movie in 1954. With this cast of The uh, studios passed on this. And I think what happened is when Marlon got on there, everybody followed suit and they had themselves a major motion picture because it was such a good script. The It's original screenplay. It's not based on a book, which is really cool because you don't see a lot of that. And who did write the screenplay? Uh, Bud, Bud Schulberg. Uh, who was quite a uh, quite a force at that time? Wrote several. Uh, there are several films that he's written that are very very highly considered now. George, can you uh, give us uh, the arc of action in this perfect film? Well, basically, like it's it's mm-hmm. a drama about the uh, the longshoremen who work along the uh, the shores of uh, near New York City. Uh, there are lots of, there's great shots you see in New York City across the way from them. It's like they are separate from the city. They're close enough to see it, but they're not part of that world. They are. On the waterfront. And it, uh, hey, hey, that works. And, and they actually filmed it on location. They actually right? did film on location. Yes. We'll get to that. So how too, cool that we was, get to see New yeah. York as it was. So yeah. the basic story surrounds the Longshoremen's Union that is run by Johnny Friendly and his thugs, and they've basically taken it over and turned it into their own money making machine. And the longshoremen who work there, who you know, have generations of of these guys who worked unloading stuff from boats. And they've been taken advantage of. The thugs are always up against them. They've got to pay kickback money. They've got – they have to take loans from this little Weasley guy who they call J.P. Morgan. Um, and, Is that really true? Yeah, they call him J.P. Morgan. Um, and – Basically, the Crime Commission in New York is trying to get in there and get some evidence so they can clean up the waterfront. But they're having no luck. And when the film opens, one of the guys who has actually decided to talk to the Crime Commission uh, ends up getting pushed off a roof right at the beginning of the film. Joey Doyle. It was kind of a sad setup on that too, but that's Mm – yeah. And and this is where Terry Malloy comes in because you find out that Johnny Friendly and his thugs have asked Malloy – to go and tell Doyle that he's got one of his pigeons, because one of the big things in this film is the guys, as a hobby, they raise and race pigeons, and they have big pigeon coops on the roofs of the old buildings. So Doyle goes up to um, to see the pigeon on the roof, and they grab him, and they throw him off the roof. And Malloy is kind of shocked by this. He's like, I thought they were just going to strong arm. I didn't think they were going to kill him. So immediately this sets up this conflict in Terry because he's always been the guy who takes the fall. He's always been the guy who, whatever they ask him, especially his brother Charlie, who is the money guy for the Longshoremen's Union. He always trusts Charlie. Charlie's looking out for his good interests, you know. And so Terry is just kind of going along well on his way to becoming a full-blown thug. So after Joey Doyle's death, you know, the story begins to open up and introduce the characters of the priest who is trying, you know, who finds himself embarrassingly, you know, um, 
kind of behind his pulpit a little too much. He's he's beginning to realize what's going on outside the church, and he gets really put on the spot by Edie, Joey Doyle's sister, played by Eve Marie Saint, when she says, how many saints do you know of hiding in a church? And so he decides to put his neck out and start helping these longshoremen if they will come out with him. But uh, the story basically is built out of how this longshoremen's union is going along, um, you know, who are they going to get? Who's the crime commission going to get to talk? And um, and how is Terry going to fit into this thing? And and eventually it gets to the point where Terry decides to go to the crime commission. But, um, you know, but again, he finds that his brother is coming against him. And, and I don't want to give too much more because it gets, it's very, very, very complicated. Yeah. And it would take me the entire half hour to even start explaining it. Many, that many a, forces. Many, the many, Beatle, many strands that all come together. It's complication is that it's also very deceptively simple mm-hmm. because it's built around one thing. And it, the one thing is the conscience, is, is the guilt uh, and w- what you're supposed to do is respond and not react. That's what they're. That's why the minister, who's played dynamically by Carl Malden, becomes their conscience. Uh, he loses his conscience at first, and they keep pushing into Terry Malone. And what makes Terry Malone Malloy? Uh, excuse me, Terry Malloy mm-hmm. work with Eva Marie Saint is mostly physical attraction, of course. Yeah, uh, yeah. But, <laughs> it's notable. Yeah. she. They are all built around this premise of a conscious as pigeons and birds. And when you watch this movie, watch it very carefully because she comes to rescue him as an angel on the roof. Mm -hmm. And on that roof, you're going to see a cross on her right shoulder almost all the time. And he's behind the chicken wire fighting to get off of that roof. He can't take off. And he wears this checkered jacket because he can't make up his mind through this whole picture. And at the end... There's a jacket that gets passed from this man who gets killed. Who is the substitutional sacrifice in the movie? Yeah, that's Joey already, Doyle. He's already Remind taken. us what that is. It's, there's there's tension that needs to be released, but it's not a main character, right? right. No, More or he, less. It's, it's Joey take, Joey Doyle's jacket. Joey has this really nice bomber jacket, and when he gets killed, the jacket gets passed along to another character. Yes. And that character is like the next one who decides to go and talk to the crime commission. He gets killed. And, and then the jacket goes back to Edie, and then she gives it to Terry. And at the end, Terry Malloy, right? Terry, Terry yes. Malloy, yep, yes. That's he it. is wearing that aviator's jacket when he gets the stuffings kicked out of him. And so he is just shy of being in the, They break a pigeon's neck. It's all there, and it's right. incredibly dynamic because when they're talking, you'll see this – this, these infinite rows of metal fences that they can't get out. It just right. goes on and on, and he's always behind bars. Yeah, because I lo- there's I a, never noticed that. There's a great conversation between Terry and Father Barry, uh, which is one where he is where he convinces Terry to tell Edie that he feels responsible for he feels responsible for her her uh, brother's death. And it's behind this. There's this great big metal fence with sharp points on it. Yes. And behind that, you see New York City. I know you got a subpoena. Well, I don't know. It's like carrying a monkey around on your back. A question of who rides who. But you know, if I spill my life, I ain't worth the nickel. And how much is your soul worth if you don't? They're asking me to put the finger on my own brother. Johnny Funny used to take me to ball games when I was a kid. Ball games don't break my heart. 
I wouldn't care if he gave you a life pass to the polo grounds. So you've got a brother, eh? Well, let me tell you something. You've got some other brothers. And they're getting a shorthand while your Johnny's getting mustard on his face at the polo grounds. Ball games. Listen, if I were you, I would walk right. Never mind. I'm not asking you to do anything. It's your own conscience that's got to do the asking. Conscience? That stuff, that stuff can drive you nuts. Good luck. Hey, is that all you got to say? <laughs> you know, at the end of the scene, you watch it, and he runs down to meet her, and, and it looks like he's a pigeon flying out of these bars. He just... He, it, it's an elevation down because they, they use a lot of great elevation angles in there and he flies down to see her you see him running down there and then he confronts her and they got all these whistles blowing because <laughs> he's blowing on them and you can see her responding there's no there's no words and you can just see it all happening it's very fascinating stuff you know I wonder I've seen this movie several times in my life and I never recognized that that symbolism, this the bars and the and the the resonance Pigeons between. In a cage. He's always hanging on the chicken wire right. talking. Now, do you think well, most people catch that, or do you think no. it's because you guys have no. these awesome frame brains? I, I just think they're making a movie here, and they want to yeah. entertain you to the absolute best. I, the director, I mean, Kazan knew that. I mean, yeah. I'm sure he knew it that it, that's what he was doing, and it's there for sure. the people who get it. But sure. it doesn't change the film if you yeah. don't get it. Except that it just adds it to it adds if you do. It. Because you also think about the scenes where the guys are waiting on the docks for their jobs. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like. Think about going out and having to stand out in front of this place in the and heat, maybe you in the do, rain. Maybe you maybe don't. You do, and, they, and then you see them standing there like a bunch of pigeons. Mm. They're just kind of milling about. And then when they don't get the jobs, the priest goes, so what are you guys going to do? Come back tomorrow. They, they don't do anything. Yeah. We're talking about On the Waterfront on Filmically Perfect in 1954. Black and white, gorgeous. Uh, is it Elia or Elias Kazan? Elia? Elia? I think it's Elia. It's still pigeon. It's still <laughs> Who directed it? Elia Kazan. Elia Kazan. Well, we'll get to the quote in a minute. Okay. Yeah. Um, also, Brando Rod Steiger in this, uh, uh, Eva Marie Saint in a, a huge role for her. Uh, perfect in every way. Also, I, I happened to uh, do a little reading and saw that Brando was in therapy. He was in great personal turmoil uh, throughout the... He was for his entire life. I mean, Yeah, I guess know. so. But, you know, this but is... he had to left, leave the set every day at 4 o'clock to go to therapy, period. Yeah, that's Done. okay. We still no, like sure, it. sure, great, sure. Man. I just think that's interesting to put that in, you know, the, to add context around the whole. Amazing... I can imagine if he was having if he was having issues like that during this film, that actually may have added to his performance because I think it Terry did. is just so haunted it's and the, so persecuted role, from. Man. Yeah, it's just one of his best roles ever. You also notice at the end there when. When the redemption arrives, he's at the window, and the window is covered with bars, and he lifts the bars and goes outside. Mm-hmm. And it's just about the same place we were in the beginning when the guy jumped off the roof. You know, his conscience is, like, pushing him into the fire. Um, there's also uh, there's this magnificent scene that sticks with me all the time. Uh, when Carl Malden has to go down to the hold of the ship to investigate, you know, he doesn't need a doctor, he needs a priest. And then right. Carl This Walter is the, the second the second character that is going to talk to the crime commission yeah. gets a, a load of uh, whiskey boxes dropped on him. And this scene here probably made Carl Malden the driving force that he was because I I would challenge an atheist to watch this and not be moved by it. You want to know what's wrong with our waterfront? It's the love of a lousy buck. 
It's making love of a buck, the cushy job, more important than the love of man. It's forgetting that every fella down here is your brother in Christ. But remember, Christ is always with you. Christ is in the shape up, he's in the hatch, he's in the unit. He's kneeling right here beside Dugan. And he's staying with all of you. If you do it to the least of mine, you do it to me. And what they did to Joey and what they did to Dugan, they're doing to you. And you, you, all of you. And only you, only you with God's help have the power to knock him out for good. Yeah, man. When I miss church, I just pull out of bed and turn that thing on and watch that, buddy. That's all I need. I think I think uh, Carl Malden at this point, he's just you know he'd just been an actor for some time, but I think he was one of Kazan's go-to guys by this time. I think Kazan had used him several times in films, and he's just he's his delivery is so perfect. And I think that's also probably a Kazan thing, and I'm sure he would definitely take credit for it. That um, that there were few directors who could work, who could like ring out a performance from actors like like Kazan could, because everybody in this movie pulls out all the stops. But at the same time, they're not just you know even even Lee J Cobb when he is just screaming at the top of his voice, it's still very controlled, and he can pull it back in. And Kazan has this this way of just keeping all these characters balanced because it's a big cast. And you'll watch these beautiful scenes where uh, Carl Malden is talking to Terry, and he doesn't take anything from him. He's, he he doesn't take him go. Have it. Yeah, mm-hmm. he's, he's right. a priest with conviction, and like George says, he just does that man and it's just it's riveting when he says who do you think you are and you know and don't break my heart don't break yeah. my heart and Beautiful it's also style. quite obvious he, he's Love not it. this you know he's not often you know priests are often pictured as these these characters on a on a pillar you know above everyone else and he's he's a, you know he's a knuckle down guy anyways you know and and he's not ashamed to admit it it's, it's obvious that i think he's he's from that area possibly um when he confronts them in a bar and he's talking to Terry in a bar one time he goes I need a beer let's have a beer you know and he smokes all the way through it's the picture real, you know? yeah. he, has a, he has a cigarette when he's coming up out of the hole because he goes kind of go down he goes down into yeah. hell and well, and he yeah, comes back and that, oh that reminds me in that the end of the scene in the hold when they take uh, Dugan Dugan's body up out of the hold and they put him on a on a platform and then they use the winch to raise him up and the way Kazan shoots it it's the father is standing there Edie is sitting on the edge of it, and of course Dugan is laid out on it, and it rises up out of the hold. Yeah, and, and like, the camera's like right there. Yeah. You know. It's really beautiful. Mm. Oh, oh, I got goosebumps. Oh. This whole I know. movie, it's so good. <laughs> this whole movie, we'll try not to talk too much about it, but it was shot on location, and it was very difficult because back then the equipment was very heavy, and the cameras were very heavy, and they shot it in the winter. But what's very cool about that is there's no cranes. Cranes are the evil of movies. They really are. And they shot everything locked down and with very little panning. And what they did was they selected these marvelous shots in this movie. They're too high or maybe too low. Like when he's talking about Carl Malden, it's down in the hole and it's all dark and you see these heads around this opening. Right. And then they, they just do a jam cut down below underneath Carl Malden looking up at the people. Mm. So Carl Malden's got this the weight of the world on his shoulders mm. in that hole. Oh, Absolutely nice. extraordinary. There's hardly ever a reverse in this picture unless it's a star, but almost everything is wide and it's in focus. The mm. only thing that's possibly really wrong with this picture is they had problems with sound back then matching up. And I don't think that you'll ever notice that because only because I said so, but because the story is so powerful. 
We're talking about On the Waterfront, the 1954 perfect film. Uh, an amazing cast of actors that uh, made this story come to life. We, you've, you made a quote about the director that is uh, kind of notable, which speaks to the story behind the story of the making of mm-hmm. this film. And uh, he, Well, the film, like I said, the, the film had a hard – first, let's say that the film had a hard time getting made anyways – because they were tackling a subject that was rather delicate in this area. I mean, it is a story, as they would say, ripped from the headlines. Mm. And the production crew ran into trouble with the local longshoremen's unions where they were <laughs> shooting it. They didn't want this story to be told because they didn't want someone coming sniffing around. So the shoot was, I, I believe, was fraught with quite a bit of peril mm. um, while they are making the film. But, but Kazan himself... In this sort of dark era of the mid-50s, as so many other people, found himself in front of the House Un-American Activities Committee. And unlike some of his uh, brethren, uh, he named names. Named names. He named lots of names. Yeah. And and caused a lot of pain for a lot of people. So um, in more recent times, the the late uh, director and and screenwriter Abraham Polanski – uh, who wrote? Um, who did? Um, oh, the boxing film. Uh, Night and oh, I can't remember. Not my late. brain, my brain's gone completely away. But Abraham but. Polanski, anyways, um, of of this film and of Kazan, uh, he said, uh, "On the waterfront is a film by squealers about squealers for squealers." <laughs> so I had we'll, a bit of a chip on his shoulder. We'll move on to so. a, a really important thing here because <laughs> yeah. we're not going to just we're not going to disappoint our audience. That's because right. we're going to talk about one of the most famous scenes that has ever happened in a movie. Right. But before I talk about that, mm-hmm. uh, when you're when you're on that roof looking around at that cross on her shoulder, look at Terry's side, and it's all bent up antennas and aerials of, of really communication that just doesn't get there. I just love it. Over. It's like a present. You <laughs> know, I can watch that movie again and even get are more beat up, but. At the end of the movie, the famous scene where Steiger is in the backseat of the car with Brando, um, we're, we're going to talk about that because that was a very simple scene. If there was ever been a scene carried by actors, this is it. You remember that night in the garden? You came down to my dressing room and said, Kid, this ain't your night. We're going for the price on Wilson. You remember that? This ain't your night. My night, I could have taken Wilson apart. So what happens? He gets the title shot outdoors in a ballpark, and what do I get? A one-way ticket to Palookaville. You was my brother, Charlie. You should have looked out for me a little bit. You should have taken care of me just a little bit so I wouldn't have to take them dives for the short-end money. Well, I had some bets down for you. You saw some money. You don't understand. I could have had class. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody instead of a bum, which is what I am. Let's face it. It was you, Charlie. Years ago on Big Lebowski, Rod Steiger came in to read for that role, and I got to meet him. And I wanted so badly to ask him 
if they would ever, you know, him and uh, Marlon Brando would sit on some metal chairs and do that scene for me, you know. But <laughs> on some television show, it'd be really cool. Just Wouldn't throw it? some Venetian blinds up and have them sell metal chairs and redo that scene. Well, know? the the apocryphal the apocryphal story on that scene is that, of course, there is you know there is a two shot of them doing the conversation, but then there are are cutaways to each one of them. And from what I understand, when um, Brando did his cutaways. Steiger was there feeding him lines. But when Steiger did his cutaways, Brando couldn't be bothered. So Steiger had to read his lines, had to have his lines fed to him by some, you know, some PA or something like that. Well, I had uh, read that uh, that was because he had to go to the therapist. That's what I was thinking now that I've heard that. He had to go. go. But then I I was kind of amazed. I mean, that it all came up. I think you're right. It almost added to the intensity of what was going on. But I mean, like I said, Kazan was no fool when it came to actors. They, you know, he knew these guys could pull it off. And I'm sure Steiger, even, you know, that, you know, he didn't have Brenda there to work with. Steiger was Steiger. So he pulled it off. Something really cool scene in there when Steiger's talking to Lee J. Cobb. He's talking to his feet. And he's got, you know, Lee J. Cobb's got his feet up on the desk. And they're, they're putting the pressure on Steiger to go get his brother and make him straighten up. And he's talking right into these very polished Florsheim shoes. And they cut back. You know, and it's really, he's too far away for that. But you don't notice it. Uh, you'll see Lee J. Cobb is surrounded by his thugs. And that clubhouse that gets amazingly smaller at the end of the picture, all of a sudden it looks right. like a little matchbox on the on water. On the water, yeah. Huh. Oh, and one thing before we we cannot we cannot go away without mentioning the score to the film. Oh, how Leonard can we Bernstein's not? absolutely monumental score that carries this film all the way through. Oh, beautiful stuff, and it's just you know it's just so. I mean, when it needs to be, it's tender. When it needs to be tough, it's tough. And and you know, and again, Bernstein was this was near the beginning of his career. He had done some some of the ballets and and was beginning to get noticed. This is, I mean, this was a big piece of work for him and it it's not a variation on the same theme a lot of times it's different melodies as he dumps them in there uh, all the way down through the movie that helps you not notice the big sound breaks because of his live location shooting when they put that together now nowadays they replace all that audio it Mm -hmm. all gets replaced but back then it's amazing they sent that out like that because it really is that you'll hear an airplane in one scene another one but it's so powerful with all these guys and this little teeny film that they made, and and it's always going to be a historical masterpiece as far as I'm concerned. Um, there's just no comparison for the, the power in this picture, boy. Uh, it'll be a good period piece, I think, forever. Uh, and the people then, actually, a lot of people liked it because it kind of cleared a lot of um, Academy Awards, uh, Best Actor, Best Actress, Best Art Direction, Best Cinematography, Best Director, Best Film Editing, and Best Picture. Hmm. That's a sweep. That has to be a sweep. That is, I believe, what you call a sweep. (laughs) Well, the guy that has to, the guy that should be credited is S.P. Eagle. Although many bad things are said about him as a producer, he still made this thing happen. And if you've ever been around a movie or trying to make one, you'll know how seriously hard and difficult it is. And look what he did. Amazing Mm -hmm. guy. No matter what they say about him. That, my friends, is another edition of Filmically Perfect on 91.3 WYSO. On the Waterfront, 1954's Marlon Brando, Rod Steiger thing. Absolutely a perfect movie in every way. If you haven't seen it, do look it up. And if you would like to write to the film guys, where would, where would people write to the film guys? Uh, under the water pipes, near the bus station. No, actually, write to filmguys at perfectmovie.net. 
You can also find us on iTunes at npr.org at and WYSO. Facebook. And on the Facebook. And at the studios of WYSO <laughs> in Yellow Springs. Always a pleasure to see you guys live and in person. Uh, storyboard artists for all the beautiful people. That's, yeah, I only work for beautiful people. That's it. Jay Todd Anderson, thanks yep. for being here. And the Nitrate Film Archivist for the Library of Congress and our film guy, he is George Willeman. George, thanks for being I here. I work toward being a more beautiful person. <laughs> I'm Nikki Dakota. We'll meet you back here next time. We'll see you on the radio. Thank you for listening to an archival episode of Filmically Perfect. Please keep an ear out for new episodes of Filmically Perfect. Coming very soon to iTunes and hosted on our website, www.perfectmovie.net. See you, please.